All right, all right. If you can begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles. I was reminded and then just learned that there's actually two other birthdays today. Charlie Rose, correct? She has a birthday today. She is one, right? Today is the one-year-old birthday. And then Tessa has a birthday today, and she is 12. And so get to share this day with a couple of others, which is awesome. So as Damien said a couple different times this morning, we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3 and the fall as it is in, more than likely um, titled in your Bibles and that is, is commonly referred to. But before we get there, I, just, I, want, to, I want to mention two things um, briefly and, and just hit on them before we get into Genesis 3. And, and they're more follow-up by way of what we covered last week. So we're going to circle back just a little bit. Uh, the first is um, just a caution for us. Um, that And we didn't hit on it real specifically last week, but it is in the text. That when we look at God creating Adam out of the dust of the ground and then breathing life into him, and then Adam realizing there's nobody like him as he names the entire animal kingdom that was created on day six, and then God causes him to fall asleep. He removes a rib from Adam and then creates Eve from that rib. The caution is this. We need to be careful that we do not say that men now have one less rib than women. It's not anatomically true. Although it sounds good, and I remember from my childhood, somebody who I love and trust and believe virtually every word that comes out of their mouth saying, well, one of the ways we know that God's word is true, that he created things in seven days, is because men have one less rib than women do. And I remember hearing that going, oh, that's amazing. What, that, that's conclusive evidence. Is it not that here's the account of what happened and there, there's one less rib that every guy has? And, uh, well, it, it actually is anatomically not true. Uh, not that Adam got the rib back. He had one less rib, but that wasn't passed on. And so we just need to be cautious there and my daughter actually came home from hearing that not from inside the church just but from another place and it just is one of those things where it sounds really good but we just got to be really careful because those types of explanations for our young ones and I can certainly say myself included um, are, end up not being helpful because I actually still mentally default to that spot. Um, it's just part of, uh, there's something about when you're a kid and you learn and hear things from those that you deeply trust, um, those things take a long time to unlearn if they're incorrect. So perhaps even a bit of a cautionary tale of even what I'm doing in this moment being a teacher and why God's word says not many of us should presume to be teachers because of the weight and responsibility that is there. So there is that one. Let's just be careful and cautious there. Um, The second one is, and I want to, this one I think matters a little bit more, if not tremendously more. I want to touch very briefly on singleness. 
Last year in, or last week in the text, we looked at the ideal of marriage. We looked at the different roles that God has given man and God has given woman in marriage and how man, Adam, was given the initiating responsibility. Eve was giving the complementing responsibility. There was not someone suitable for Adam. And so God said for the first time in the creation week, this is not good. We need to make a helper fit for him, somebody that compliments him. And while we looked at the ideal, I want to be very, very careful that I'm not in any way insinuating that there is an inherent brokenness or sinfulness to singleness. Now, in saying that, I also just have to honestly recognize I'm not the best person to say and speak these things because I'm not a single person. And I don't live and own and walk in that world as some of you or some of those that you know do. And I've been greatly helped and found great benefit from a a single friend of mine who's about 28, desires to be married, but God has just never brought the right person for him to pursue that with. And he has helped me understand how often in the church in celebrating marriage, we can oftentimes create an environment where those that are single feel like they've been off-put or something is inherently broken or sinful because they're not married. And so I just want to say very clearly, singleness is not sinfulness. And if you are single or you know somebody who is single, the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 7, very clearly say that singleness is actually a gift It's a spiritual gift that God gives. And the same is said of marriage. And the question then becomes, what do we do with the gift that God has given us? And if you are single or you know someone who is single, I just want to tell you that you, you walk in good company. Jesus himself was single. John the Baptist was single. Anna the prophetess in Luke 2 was a widow and had been for either 84 years or she was 84 when it was written. There's a bit of a debate on how you interpret that number. But she had been a widow for decades and decades and decades and was celebrated as a woman of God. I think you have Mary and Martha that can be added to that list. Mary Magdalene, I think at some point there's legitimacy to concluding that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, passed away before Mary did. And so she even eventually became a single widow as well. So there's good company, and those are godly men and women. And I don't want in any way to insinuate that singleness is sinfulness and that there's somehow an inherent brokenness if you are single or know someone who is. And so in celebrating the ideal and touching on Genesis 2 and even this morning a little bit in regards to the fall, which comes in the context of an attack on marriage. I want to just be very careful that my words aren't in any way implying or insinuating that if you're not married, there's something wrong. Now, some are not married by choice. Some are not married because of sin. Either you were left and you were sinned against and some are married by what I would just simply, or some are not married by what I would just simply term as fallenness. That death was never a part of God's original design. And the fall 
in Genesis 3 brings with it the curse of death. And I think those of you that are widows or widowers are single because of fallenness. It's not a part of what God originally created you for. It will not be a part of what God has in store for us in the future. And it is most certainly not sinfulness on your part. So I want to be clear in that as we hop into the text. So before we go any further and hop into Genesis 3, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll start unpacking these first several verses in Genesis chapter 3. Well God, I come to you now and, and just ask that you would that you'd help us to do in these moments what we're only able to do by your Holy Spirit and that's understand your word. And so God, we pray that he would give Um, He would give insight and illumination to what it is that you've written. And so God, we we pray that we would understand what it is that you've written and what what we take away and what we interpret and what we apply would be faithful to what it is that you have written. God, our interpretations can be can be filled with error, and yet your word is not. And we pray and I pray. That as we think through what it is that you say in regards to the fall, that our thinking and our, our conclusions and our applications would be true to what it is that you have said. And so God, to that end, would you be gracious to us and allow a freedom in this place for your spirit to just come and meet with us collectively and yet individually as well. As a group, we need to hear these things, but most certainly as individuals, as parts to the whole, we need to hear these things. And God, we pray that you would speak clearly to us. And we pray this in Jesus' good name, amen. Well, as we get into Genesis chapter 3, I'll tell you, this is one of the most challenging or more challenging places in the beginning chapters of the Bible. It is not that Genesis 1 and 2 are without their challenges. There certainly are, and we we stepped into that and certainly want to continue encouraging thoughtful conversation and discussion about how science and faith and science and the Bible certainly interact and and can can live in harmony with one another. Uh, But Genesis 3 begins to ask us or or cause us to ask perhaps a, a form of question that's much more philosophical in nature where we're not given hard and fast answers. There's not a there's not a lab somewhere that Things can be observed. There's not a DNA sequence that can be mapped out. And we're left with perhaps thinking and trying to conclude and make conclusions based on what God's word says elsewhere. And so we need to, on one hand, recognize that it's not wrong to ask these questions. Why not be thinkers? Why not be afraid of any good questions but at the same time the answers are not perhaps as cut and dry or clear as other answers may be and so here's some of the questions that at least come in to my mind as we get into the fall Um, who created evil why didn't God just put an end to it right then and there I mean these are some real questions it's, it's called in theological circles as the problem of evil. If God created everything very good, all of a sudden, why now is there this dissonant chord? 
struck in the melody and harmony line. If we take a music metaphor and apply it there. And, and I don't pretend to have all the answers, and I'm not a great philosopher, um, but I think some of the answers can be perhaps found in per, perhaps changing some of the language we use to describe Adam and Eve. And what I'm going to say perhaps on the front side sounds a little blasphemous, so I want to be careful there and also give you a heads up. Okay, so put your antenna up. Be a little guarded here in this moment, but then I'm going to explain it, and I, I think it fits, okay? And it's this. I think the answer to some of these questions lies in Adam and Eve were not created perfect, but they were created sinless. Let me say that again. Adam and Eve were not perfect, but they were sinless. Now, I have to define the word perfect for you for that statement to actually have any type of basis or standing. And I would say the word perfect in this sense should be defined as the inability to not sin. Or the inability to sin. I gave you a double negative and I didn't mean to do that. The inability to sin. And so perfection in that sense is defined as God. God alone is the only one that we see in the scriptures who is incapable of sinning. At some point, and we're not told in Genesis 1, 2, or 3 when the angelic host was created, but we are told that they are created beings. At some point, God created in the six days the angelic host. And we know that they had the capability of sinning because Satan was an angel who sinned and who fell and led probably a third of the angelic created beings to follow him. We see that Adam and Eve are capable of sinning. They're capable of disobedience. They do so. It's in the text. And so while they are sinless, they are not perfect if we define perfect as the inability to sin. God created them with the capacity or the capability to make this choice. And they chose disobedience and as a result of Adam's choice, results of sin now invading every part and every fiber and every air molecule and every cell in your eyes and every cell in your ears. I mean, if you have eyeglasses, you have those because of the fall. If you need hearing aids or can't hear certain frequencies, that's because of the fall. If you've ever had a surgery or you've ever had to take medicine for anything, that's because of the fall. The fall and the consequences thereof is far more pervasive in and throughout our entire universe than I think we often give conscious thought to. Because we don't often think of eyeglasses being the result of sin, but that's exactly what they are. They're the result of Adam's sin. And so now death, the breaking down of cells and molecules, has now invaded your DNA code as it relates to your eyeballs or your ears or whatever it may be. And it's a result of Adam's sin. And it has pervasively affected absolutely everything. And we have... In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the beginnings of God revealing to us what took place. And I would submit to you that part of the answer about why did God create evil, did he create evil, 
The answer is no, he did not create evil, but he created the angelic host, and he created man and woman, Adam and Eve, with the capability of free choice. In that sense, they are the only ones who have ever been free, because you and I are sinners by nature, which has been confirmed by our actions. We've never had a choice outside of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going to try to unpack a little bit of that in the next few minutes remaining. But let's get to the text. I don't want to just find ourselves this morning hanging out in the philosophical, theoretical landscape. Those questions are there. They're valuable. It is certainly worthwhile to go there and give thought there. But I want to be a little bit more specific in regards to just trying to shine a spotlight on the way we see temptation come, both to Eve and Adam, and then how you and I, perhaps knowing where we might be prone to be tempted, can do and put defenses up in anticipation of that temptation and when it actually comes upon us. And so that's what we're going to try to outline for one another this morning. And so we're going to see four different ways temptation comes to bear in this text. The first is a temptation to undermine the roles and design that God had made. The second is a temptation to question and subvert God's word. Third is a temptation to hide and self-protect. And fourth is a temptation to blame shift. And so let's start unpacking the first. Numbers 1 and 2 will kind of come from the same set of verses. So let's just read verses 1 to 6. We'll actually stretch it through 7 to just complete the thought. But let's go to the text and read these verses together and then we'll break them down a little bit further. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first temptation we see here is a temptation to undermine the roles and design that God has made. And it is, in my opinion, entirely significant that the serpent comes and asks Eve the question. And it's an undermining of the roles that God created and the design he made to fulfill the purpose for marriage that he had because it wasn't Eve's question to answer. 
And she was asked in that moment, and the Hebrew gives indication to this, to be the representative for her and her husband. And that is the complete inverse of how God has created the role and relationship between husband and wife. Where he has given given the responsibility for what we'd call headship. And we're going to see this as it plays out in even the consequences that come down. And when we get to the New Testament, and we'll look at this verse in just a minute, it is not Eve's sin that is said to have thrown the world into sin. It is Adam's sin. That Adam, as the male head in the garden, as the head of humanity, had a role and responsibility And it was the result of his disobedience, not hers, that caused the world to enter into sin and suffer the curses of that choice. But the very first way we see this temptation come is that the serpent, who is more crafty than any other beast of the field, comes and asks her the question. And every plural pronoun, or every pronoun that you see there between verses 1 and 5, the word you that shows up on repeat through those verses is in its plural form. The serpent is coming and he's asking Eve to represent the both of them. Now when God comes in, and we'll look at these verses in just a few moments, beginning in verse 8, he uses the word you just as the serpent did, but he uses it in the singular form in verses 9 and 11, specifically addressing Adam and Adam's issue and Adam's disobedience. And I'm going to be real clear here because it is not that the woman was inferior to the man and somehow incapable of answering the question. That's not the issue. I think to conclude that that is the issue would be sexist, it would be chauvinistic, and it is just not biblical. The issue is not that she was somehow incapable of answering the question or inferior. Satan was not trying to pick off the weak link in the relationship. He was subverting the design of God. That's where the issue is. He was subverting the design of God where he... The husband was given the initiating responsibility, the responsibility of headship to guard, protect, work, and keep. She was given the responsibility of complimenting, and it just wasn't her question to answer. But it's not because she was inferior, it's not because she was the weak link, it's not because she was incapable. It was just because God did not give her that responsibility. And so as such, and as I've alluded to, we have here Adam's sin specifically being credited with the fall. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Jesus comes on the scene as the second Adam And so I think the first thing that we need to see in here and in the temptations that we are going to find is that there is a temptation that we will face to undermine the roles and design that God has made. It's a temptation to undermine the roles and design that God has made. And we see that on display. 
Secondly, the second temptation that we see on display is a temptation to question and subvert God's word. Again, the serpent speaks, he's crafty. In verse 2, we see this temptation on display. Did God actually say? Did God actually say this? And she answers the question. He disagrees. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. There will be a temptation that you and I will face to question and subvert God's word. Yeah, God, I know you say that, but will be the way and form that that takes place. I know you want me to do this, but will be what we find ourselves having to process and fight against. And I would submit to you as we look at the specific things that Eve reasoned in verse 6, there's going to be even three very specific ways this second temptation comes towards us. The first is that our flesh will be enticed to find gratification outside of what God has Provided. And so she concludes, firstly, that the tree was good for food. It doesn't matter what God had said. She concludes that the tree was good for food. Her flesh was enticed to find gratification outside of what God had provided. He had provided for both of them every tree in the garden except one. And the very first conclusion she reaches as she is deceived by the serpent is that God is somehow withholding something from me. And I will find more gratification or my appetites for food will be more satisfied if I go this route instead of obey what God has said. And she reasons and rationalizes That there was gratification to be found outside of what God had provided. We've talked a lot about this over the last several years. That one of the ways that we need to think about obedience to God and to the scriptures. Is to not think that God is keeping us from something. But rather in telling us to obey him and his word. He is trying to lead us to something. We can oftentimes, I think, default to when I hear or read, you should not do this, or you should not look at that, or you should not live or act this way. And the examples could be so varied that we think God's trying to keep me from something good. Because in that moment, the invitation to sin feels like a good thing. It feels exciting. It feels like it's going to deliver on what it promises. It feels like it's going to gratify the desires that we have. It's going to satisfy the appetites that we have. And we think that because God has said no to that thing, he's just trying to keep us from good things. When the reality is, is God's actually trying to lead us to the greater things. But our flesh will be tempted to find gratification outside of what God had Provided. Secondly, our eyes will be tempted, enticed to desire what God has not provided. And so firstly, the tree was good for food. Secondly, it was a delight to 
the eyes, I think we can bring in and pull in some other scriptures that are, are, are certainly informative here in even regards to the Ten Commandments where two of them are you shall not be jealous and you shall not covet. And we see those repeated out and throughout the New Testament as well that there will be an enticement in us, a temptation in us to want and covet or be jealous of those who have something we don't. This is what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is about. On repeat, Solomon says, take the gifts that God has given you, be satisfied in them, and don't look for things elsewhere. Take what God's given you, be satisfied and be content. And he uses the example of other people who work their tail off to go achieve something, to buy something. And, he, and Solomon writes about the temptation to want to go buy that thing or achieve that thing, but doing so at the expense of what actually matters. And so just in, in that vein, I, I don't think it's wrong to pursue a job promotion. I don't think it's wrong to desire your dream home. I don't think it's wrong to desire a certain type of car. But I think the, the wrongness, and this is where the temptation comes up, at least is what I've seen in my life, is that when I'm willing to sacrifice or disobey what God has said in the pursuit of those things, so if I go pursue a job promotion at the expense of my family, I've erred. Because the family is supposed to be first. If I, if I go and buy a car that's my dream car without having applied good biblical financial money management strategies to save up the money to do so, I've erred because I've short-circuited the process that God even gave me to be able to find and purchase that thing. If I want the dream house and all of the bedrooms and all of those things because somebody else has it, and I plunge my family into mortgage debt that's insurmountable and suffocating, I've erred. And we had to wrestle through with that, especially as it relates to houses, as we did house hunting over the last year. What are, what, what are we going to be content with and in the process? What do we have to say no to? And, and those were very real questions that we had to wrestle with as we engaged in that process. And there is, an, a, there, there is a way to short circuit that and not obey what God has said about just applying financial, biblical, wise principles to our lives. And so we can be enticed in our eyes to desire what God has not provided. We can be jealous of something somebody else has. We can covet what something somebody else has. And then ultimately in the pursuit of those things, completely short-circuit what God has in His grace given us instructions to follow because He wants to lead us to things that are greater. Thirdly, our pride can be enticed to think that we're smarter than God. So the tree was... A delight to the eyes, secondly, it was good for food, firstly, and third, it was desired to make one wise. 
I think the temptation there is to entice our pride to think that we're smarter than God. To entice us to believe the lie that somehow God has withheld something from us that if we partook of it, we would be all the more better. And so Eve reasons that God has withheld from her knowledge or wisdom that this fruit will provide for her. And she takes and she eats of it. And I think in some ways the way this applies to our lives is when we, when we conclude that there's some deficiency in God's word for addressing the needs and issues we have today. That somehow God hasn't given us what we need to follow him faithfully and live for his glory and be the disciple-making disciples that he's called us to be. When, when somehow we think that there's, there's something missing here that we have to go find elsewhere, that's where this third enticement begins. And every other major worldview is going to offer you those truths or theories or thoughts. But I think even more practically, it gets its application and finds its application in when we begin to conclude that what God has given to us is somehow insufficient. And this boils and goes back and interacts with number two a little bit when we begin to desire what God has not provided. And the example I want to give to you there comes out of actually the book of Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, this section in our Bibles of love poetry. It's like the greatest hits of the love songs that Solomon wrote to his first wife before his life became a train wreck because he didn't listen to any of these things. And there's a scene in chapter 5 where the husband and the wife, Solomon and his bride, have a bit of an argument. The details aren't fully on display, but it includes him coming to a, a door that she's on the other side of and knocking and her not being willing to answer and him getting frustrated and walking away and then her wanting to go and then find him and then beginning to pursue him. So at, at some level, there's relational dissonance there, regardless of what happen to lead to that moment they're not together and there's dissonance in their relationship and she begins to now search for him he's walked out she begins to search for him and in verse 9 of chapter 5 her friends come on the scene and they say this to her as she's in the midst of her search what is your beloved more than another beloved O most beautiful among women What is your beloved more than another beloved that you adjure us? Now let me give you the revised Tim translation to maybe help you understand what they are saying there. Uh, Your guy's a bum. Why are you looking for him? He's a bum. You're a hottie. You can go find another. That's what the friends are saying. Why are you asking us to go find this guy who has walked out on you because he's a bum, you're beautiful, we're going to be able to set you up with somebody else? That's what's happening. 
That's the friends are there. Hey, we're ready. We're, we're ready to help you break this marriage. We're ready to help you go find the next fish in the sea. We're ready to help you go find the guy, or if, it, if all the roles were reversed, find the girl who would be able to appreciate you for who you are and love you despite of what, whatever it might be. And she has to remind her friends of the commitment that she made to her marriage. And she rebukes them in that moment. But there can be an enticement to think that we're smarter than God. There can be an enticement to think, and in that context, in Song of Psalms, in chapter 5, that yeah, I got married, but you know, things are a little rough right now. And you know, yeah, God said till death, but, see where the but then comes in? I know a little bit more. What I really want is going to be found over there. And we can begin to have our pride enticed to think that we're smarter than God. Thirdly, and we'll move quickly through these last two. There's a temptation to hide and self-protect. After Adam sins, and again, it's important to note that it was not Eve's sin that caused them to realize they were naked. It was Adam's sin that caused them to realize they were naked. And where they had been at the end of chapter 2, naked and without shame, they are now, in verse 7 of chapter 3, naked and having all sorts of shame for the fact that they don't have clothes on. The effects of the fall have already begun to take place in their relationship despite the fact that God has not even given them the consequences yet. Adam sins, they realize they're naked. The eyes of them were both open and they knew that they were naked and so here's what they did. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Carry on to verse 8. They heard the Lord in the sound of the day walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said, Where are you, singular? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you, singular, that you, singular, were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, singular, not to eat? In response to sin, there will be a temptation to hide and self-protect. And we see this in what Adam and Eve do in getting the fig leaves, sewing them together. One of the hilarious things about this moment, and I think it's purposeful, quite frankly, is that when a fig leaf is hanging on the tree, it's huge. And we're talking a foot by two feet. You could put a couple of those together and get the job done. But when it dries, when you take it and disconnect it from the life-giving root, it looks like every one of those trees that's blowing around our front yards right now. It shrivels up and it dies and it no longer does the job. And that's what the temptation to hide and self-protect does as well. We think we're able to cover our stuff. 
we think we're able to somehow disguise the fact that we now realize there's stuff that has to be or has been exposed. And so we're going to do our best strategies and we're going to cover and we're going to sow and we're not going to, we're not going to name the issue and own the issue and repent of the issue. We're going to hide from it and we're going to hide from God. And the reality is, is that every one of those self-protective strategies fail. And they fail in part because God's grace doesn't want us to be able to find success there. Because he doesn't want us just able to hide and self-protect from those that we have relational dissonance with. He wants there to be reconciliation. And so instead of Adam and Eve, or Adam, as God comes and addresses him specifically, instead of him just going, you know what? This is what I did. I own it as my choice, and I repent of it, and repent of my disobedience. He tries to hide. He tries to self-protect. And it rolls into then the fourth temptation that we see on display as well. The temptation to blame shift. I think blame shifting comes in two primary ways. The first is, we just outright lie. You didn't hear correctly. You heard wrong. I never said that. You have an incorrect thought. Now, I think there's room to give people the benefit of the doubt. But you can also just outright lie and tell somebody, no, you're just wrong. That's not what happened when it actually was. What we see here in the text is the second way blame shifting comes, where there's a, de- a deflection of responsibility. And that sh- takes its shape and finds evidence in our lives when we go, yeah, I did it, but if you knew what they did, I would be excused for my behavior. And again, the, the butt gets thrown in there. And so, Adam, did you eat? The man said, verse 12, The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Yes, I ate, but if you hadn't have given me that lady, I would have never had the fruit given to me and this would have not been my fault and this would have not happened. Well, it goes one step further. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. If you hadn't have made the serpent on day six... He wouldn't have been there. He wouldn't have been crafty. The fruit would have never been presented to me. I would have never realized or rationalized all these things to be true of it. And it would be a different set of circumstances. And there is an unwillingness to name what has been done, to take responsibility and ownership for what has been done, and to repent of what has been done. And you and I will fight and face those very same temptations. And in some way, three and four are, are parts one and two of what we do in response to sin. When there is sin, and it is not an if, it is a when, do we name it for what it is, own it, and repent of it? Or do we try to hide and disguise it and make it to be something else that it's, uh, it's not? And try to find ways to self-protect and blame shift. And somehow get ourselves off the hook. 
So what do we do with this? How do we fight this? How do we combat this? I think the first is, is that we need to learn where the attacks and the temptations will come so that we're able to be and ready to defend against them. I could give you a hundred sports examples of how having knowledge pre-game allows you to be prepared for the game and the battle. And I could give you the Michigan-Penn State game and show you my victory stocks that I got on right now. But I'm going to go a different route, all right? I'm not going to say any of that. When you're taught how to drive, you're taught how to drive defensively. And I remember my mom sitting in the car right next to me, terrified to be there, but telling me that I need to be driving in anticipation of what the bonehead come in the opposite direction might do. And when you get a bunch of accidents, you get a bunch of tickets, they send you to defensive driving school so that you can learn how to not be the bonehead, but also to anticipate what the bonehead coming the opposite direction, may do. I think the same thing is true here. If we're able to learn and understand where we are prone to be tempted, where our flesh and our eyes and our pride is going to be enticed, and then what we do in response to when sin enters relationships, we can then know how to fight against it. We can know how to prepare ourselves for the enticements to come. And then how to respond in godly ways when we do find ourselves having sinned. And so we're going to find a temptation for God's design and roles to be undermined. We're going to find that there's a temptation to question and subvert God's word. We're going to find that there will be a temptation to hide and self-protect and a temptation to blame shift. And this is where at the foot of the cross and in Christ alone is where our hope is because God just takes it all there. And Christ pays for it and forgives us of it and begins to help us walk in the newness of life. And love others as he has loved. So would you stand? The band's going to lead us as in Christ alone.